and welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, a podcast about modern Chinese history from about 1839 to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is sort of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Just the usual beginning announcements. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can give once. You can make a recurring gift. Uh, you can join the substack, chineserevolutions.substack.com. More important than any of that is please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Part of a successful podcast is building a community. Uh, I'd like to know what the community would like to do. It's been fun watching the stats of where I've been you know, getting regular listeners. There's somebody in South Africa who's been with me from the beginning. You're out there. I know you're out there. I see the stats, unless there's somebody using a South Africa VPN. Anyway, so, here we go. Yes, that's that's your shout-out. You there in South Africa, I see you. So, get right into it. This episode is where the switch gets flipped, going into the Opium War. Last week we talked about the new British official in charge of trade, uh, Charles Elliot, and the coming Qing official, Lian Zexu. Uh, that's uh, don't pre pretend. Don't even pretend that my tones are going to be accurate. My compromise is okay. I'll try to get the consonants and the vowels right. You can take care of the tones on your own. On the way to finally lay down the law, so Charles Elliot thinks things are kind of going okay, and then Lian Zexu uh, comes to lay down the law, lay some smackdown on the opium trade. Uh, we looked at conditions before the op the crackdown. Uh, Elliot was a good-natured, dutiful official, but he had no real clear authority. He's eagerly hoping for the legalization of opium because that's going to remove one of the biggest moving parts in his administration, such as it was that the opium traders think he's there to be on their side, but that's not the only thing he's there for. Then Lin, uh, the Chinese official, he has extremely high integrity, and he's very, very serious about removing a moral threat to China. Not mortal, but moral. Like, this opium stuff is really screwing up China, and we need to deal with this now. In today's episode, we'll talk about the crackdown, and we'll talk about what Elliot did to get all the opium from foreign traders to turn it over to the Chinese, what he promised everyone, what he sent back to Britain, and what brought a battle fleet from Britain to attack China. Well, some of that will spill over into another episode, but that'll be about the Opium War. Here we go. 
China is kind of like a black box. Well, any human society is kind of like a black box if you're not sure how it works. A lot of the story of China is learning how to deal with the European established world order. Even something so fiddly as what a border is. I was learning about Afghanistan, and the, there's this little bit of Afghanistan. There, there's the, the big part that's pretty easy to identify, and then there's a little bit that stretches out toward China. Well, that was an agreement between British India and the Russian Empire uh, so that there wouldn't be a border between two European powers, so that there would be this buffer state between that they wouldn't have a direct connection, so there would be no accidents. Uh, Britain was actually preparing for a long time in the imperial era for war with Russia, with, with Tsarist Russia. So, you know, that they would do something like that to avoid a direct war between themselves does make sense. But anyway, Knowing what a border is uh, in the European definition, China has had to learn that. Uh, well, okay, so familiarity is a kind of knowledge, though it is not systematic. Like, so America, we think we understand the French, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the mistake is just because we're familiar with them doesn't mean we know them. So non-Chinese and non-Asians have a much harder time telling what it is that just happened when something changes in China. Uh, again, yeah, so then when some of the things happen that Charles Eliot is going to be dealing with, he doesn't know, he might have a lot better information than some previous people in his position, but he doesn't have a finger on the pulse of the imperial court in Beijing. Again, for this episode, we are drawing heavily on Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt. There's a lot of other stuff that that book talks about, other stories, other fascinating episodes, but that, but those aren't what this podcast is about. So unfortunately, I must pass those over in silence and leave it to you to read that book, that wonderful book. The key problem as we go into this, is there's no official high-level government communication between China and Britain especially. Uh, only after the Opium War will there be direct diplomatic relations. You know, so if you have that, country A agrees that X is illegal in country B, but country B allows country A to deal with their own citizens who violate the law, things like that. You know, so it's you're you're left with a patchwork of unofficial arrangements at the places where contact actually happens. So for you know foreigners were strictly kept to the foreign sector of Canton. Though British and local Chinese officials had contact, they had no way of going through official channels to make higher levels of authority understand what's going on so that they can give clearer instructions for local authorities. You know, let's think about passports. An example of this working 
Governments all around the world know what a passport is. They know what a visa is. Your country makes a travel document just like this, and the border control agents in a country you barely know about know how to grant or deny entry based on what a passport is. So, you know, your country sets the requirements for getting a visa, and once you have a visa, you have uh, official permission that airlines can recognize, you know, whether to let you even get on the plane so that they don't have to then ship you back out because you didn't have a visa. Everybody knows how everything works because after centuries of working it all out, then you know, if a country wants to grant permission, they know what that permission needs to look like as a physical object, and then decisions can be handled at very low levels. Like, okay, do we let this guy in? Do we need to ask the king? Do we need to ask the president? No, lowly border control official with a stamp can do it right there. And they couldn't do this to generalize for China foreigner relations at this time in history. This is the Achilles heel of all of this. So Charles Eliot, as the you know, superintendent, or he would keep calling himself the superintendent, but they didn't give him exactly that job. He had little actual authority, he, but he still tried his best to do his job. And it it's going to take weeks or months, depending on how fast the ship goes, to go between Britain and China to clarify anything, to get a yes or no. And, you know, when you get a yes or no, has the situation moved on? So he set up a cooperation system between different ship captains for, you know, for a police force to keep rowdy sailors in line. Um, and so, you know, think of this, you know, he was rebuked then by London for overstepping his authority, you know, because they have the view that China's a sovereign country, police is their business. So, you know, so actually exerting legal authority, that's up to China, because this is China, we're not going to set up our own uh, you know, police force. But, so, you know, Elliot had two main goals, to keep orderly relations between British traders and the Chinese to keep trade going, to make sure that the Chinese weren't going to close it off to outside dealing, uh, and then two, manage the opium trade scene. However he was supposed to do that, the you know, so he, he's supposed to keep good relations with the Chinese so that nobody British gets hurt, but also so that the Chinese are respected enough to you know, have them not close everything off. And so a lot of that is the opium trade. But his authority is unclear. He actually kept a lot of what he did have secret because he wanted to have you know the appearance of authority on his side. And so he just didn't tell anybody what the British government told him he could and couldn't do. He just but he, he tried to work out what he could do, but he, he just didn't get very much, didn't get very much clear. 
And because there was no official connection between London and Beijing, everything, you know, the, the high-level governments would make decisions, but there was no uh, communication between them directly that they would be able to, you know, make very clear directions for their lower-level functionaries right there on the scene to make decisions compatible with larger national foreign policy. Just nothing worked that way. It just wasn't there yet. So uh, zoom into winter 1838 to 1839. The governor general of Guangdong, Deng Tingzhen, uh, is conducting a successful suppression of the opium trade. He personally got on very well with Charles Eliot, but he was ordered by higher-level people to, to suppress the opium trade. He mostly targeted Chinese traders, the T-R-A-D-E-R-S, no, nobody betraying, just people trading. Uh, December 3, 1838, two Chinese opium smugglers were captured in the foreign compound with a load of opium, and they confessed under interrogation that they worked for a British trader. So this so is like, okay, yeah, we, we've got it officially right here, not just the people who know because they've been taking bribes, but we have it, you know, police investigation found these guys working for the British, bringing in opium. And you know, on December 12th, as, as, a, sim, as a signal... Uh, the Chinese soldiers were making preparations in the foreign compound for a public execution of a Chinese subject, by the way, um, for the public execution of a proprietor of an opium den uh, that he was going to be strangled in public. I, I'm, it's unclear from what I read whether they actually were able to carry this off but the uh, Europeans objecting to an execution in front of their living areas, I, I don't I don't want a public execution in my front yard. Do you want one in your front yard? Um, if you have a sick sense of humor, you might enjoy a public execution in my front yard anyway. Sorry, uh, pronouns get slippery. Um, antecedents, I believe the grammatical term is called. Okay, so... Um, Europeans objecting to, you know, they, they, you know, okay, so Chinese gathered around to watch the, uh, the, the angry Europeans tearing apart the scaffold that was being built. The, the, the Chinese soldiers didn't stop the Europeans dismantling what they'd started building. And so with all the Chinese gathered around watching, it's like, okay, so the, 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 the Europeans are mad, but there's just all these Chinese looking, standing around looking. You know, but then other, but then European sailors uh, joined up, and they were much rowdier. They were beating the Chinese crowd back with sticks to make them give some more space. And you know, when a crowd gathers in China, it's a lot of people, and they're close. I remember one time I was carrying bagpipes in a in a bagpipe case in Beijing, big big black box. Uh, I was waiting outside a subway entrance, and a volunteer security guy asked, you know, out of curiosity, what the what was in the box. I showed him, and he asked me if I could play, and I, so I did. And a crowd gathered. They were kind of close in, uh, and um, 
you know, standing idly by watching is a very Chinese thing to do. And so when the people tearing apart this scaffolding for this public execution comes in, uh, and they, you know, huge riot, you know, you hit me, I'm going to hit back, and then more hitting, and huge riot with thousands of angry Chinese who drive the foreigners back to the hoped-for refuge of their compounds. Chinese soldiers rushed in and restored order. Nobody, you know, like, so there, there wasn't a massacre of all the foreigners there in Canton, but it was it was tricky and uh you know when the british government in london inquires into what happened their demand is you know why the british subjects thought they could interfere with chinese soldiers carrying out their duties they weren't asking about the protection of british subjects so you know, as the opium war gets started it's not just about the british government forcing the Chinese to accept this immoral trade in opium. It's not just about forcing the drug trade down the Chinese, down Chinese throats. It's, you know, so the, they, uh, there was a lot of finger wagging. So the, the British didn't set up a court. They didn't give additional powers to Charles Eliot, uh, but they they you know strongly admonished the British and foreign community to follow Chinese law, but they didn't make any game changing decisions. So Eliot threatened to turn foreign violators over to the Chinese authorities, and he wrote to the Chinese authorities pledging his support, like like yeah, you guys are the people who set the laws here. This is your country. And then the opium traders, many of whom were British subjects, or they were, uh, they were people from India or uh, you know Americans. Even they were really cheesed off because they thought that this this British official would have been on their side. Uh, well, so let, let's zoom out a bit. The opium trade had become a lot more desperate and criminal. You know, so think of, like, the switch from the relatively gent gentlemanly Italian mafia to the Mexican cartels and the Russian gangs, who can be a whole lot more straight to the point when it comes to dirty work. Um, like, they, they just, if you look at any of the stories coming out of Mexico about what some of the cartels will do when they need to get things moving again, it they really know what they're about, and so don't stand in their way, because they won't ask you nicely twice. Um, in the face of increasing pressure, like a big American firm pulled out of the opium business, it's kind of funny, this one business that, that had pulled out of the opium trade, they still had all the opium, even though they had stopped forwarding it to Chinese traders to take it inland. Um, one or two of the big figures in the foreign community left. Um, and then there was another execute. There was an execution in the foreign community, public execution, February 1839 of an opium dealer, this time with enough soldiers to make sure that it went right the first time. Like, so no leisurely, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, we're going to build a scaffold here. A uh, scaffold? What for? Oh, we're going to, you know, execute somebody. Oh, that's that's nice. No, that, that's not how this worked. They came in, cleared out the area, and 
the the execution of the Chinese subject who was an opium dealer, uh, it went ahead. And okay, thank you guys. Message received. Yeah. Um, and then Lian Zexu arrives. He had been coming down from Beijing since about December. He was getting a lot of advice on his way down to take up his new position as the commissioner, uh, appointed directly by the emperor to suppress the opium trade. He was warned by a northern Chinese colleague, a fellow governor general who had made the, the bust in Tianjin, uh, North China, starting this all off, not to start a war with the foreigners. You know, though Lian was still holding to the nativist, you know, hard line against foreign interference, you know, it, the approach by the Chinese establishment was much more moderated, much more adapted to realistic views. Like one of the things they understood was, was Western military power was way too much for China to deal, to deal with. So like just all the like just all the little details they get about foreign naval vessels and the kind of guns they have um a another official named Gong Jurjun uh wrote that he shouldn't go directly at the foreigners that he should start with enforcement against Chinese users and dealers in opium uh don't go so hard that the Chinese and the foreigners unite and because then that would be too much for the Chinese official power to deal with. You know, a very important was a gradual constriction strategy, gradually building strength so that foreign military power could be negated by strong coastal defenses. Because the foreign navies were too powerful for the Chinese navy to deal with, but you know strong fortifications on the coast maybe could keep them back. On the way to Canton in February 1839, Lian Zexu personally met a guy we've talked about before who uh, his story kind of formed a lot of the uh, Chinese academics episode before the Opium War, Bao Shichun. He met the man himself, the man whose thoughts inspired the particular school of thought that Lian followed, nativist strengthening China, a bit more weight on empirical methods of understanding how to improve policy. He gave this advice to Lin. Uh, to clear a muddy stream, you must purify the source. To put a law into effect, you must first create order within. Okay. What exactly does that mean? Well, Lin got some meaning from it. The first thing was First, create order within. His first move was to arrest government officials who violated the ban on opium. Purifying the source, is his move was to completely stop foreign importation of opium at Canton. Bao Shichun later said that Lian Zexu misunderstood him completely. I that would be something really interesting to look more into. So let let me editorialize for a moment. So many balances have to go exactly right, especially in you know, foreign relations. You have to figure out the rules as you go, and keep the rules as you discover them, and then figure out how to renegotiate them if that's necessary. 
you know, China today needs foreign business, but China wants to be strong. Foreign business needs China's manufacturing base. Also, they want the Chinese market. Chinese companies also want to become stronger on their own. Chinese companies want the world market. How do you make all that work? We kind of have a lot of stuff figured out because we've fought a few wars with China over it. A lot of the rules have been set. Um, it's n very, very, very far from perfect, but it's getting along. No one knew how it was going to be when Lin Zexu arrived in Canton to do his job. They knew he had authority directly from the emperor, but which way was he going to, to go? Was it going to be complete crackdown? Was he going to lighten things up a bit? Maybe he's more of a laid-back, moderate kind of guy, mild personality, and he's not going to be extremely harsh. Well, the uh, he came to kick ass and pass out bubblegum, and he hadn't brought any bubblegum. He started with mass arrests of Chinese dealers, mass confiscation of opium pipes and stocks of opium. He even sent orders ahead while he's on the way down. Within three months of arrival, he arrested five times as many as Deng Tingzhen, the governor of, of Guangdong there, had arrested in two years. Like So this guy meant business, and it wasn't in import-export business. Uh, uh, March 18, he went against Chinese advice and all previous precedent. He directly targeted the foreign compound. So they they had some rules on the ground that, you know, like, so the Chinese would, okay, the, the foreigners can only be right there, but as much as possible, don't mess with them. Don't d just... Just leave them there, make sure they stay in their little box. You can do this sort of business, but otherwise don't bother them too much. Is direct order to British merchants. Three days, hand over all the opium, or or else. Um, he, started, he put a lot of pressure on the Hong merchant family. Um, and this is fairly common in historical dealings between China and the West. The local Chinese get the first and bear the most when things turn against foreigners because they should have explained things, they should have managed things better. They're the ones who have to bend over and take it smiling when when things go badly. So just as a as a thought, whenever you go into a foreign country, be very, very good to the local friends who are helping you. Be very thoughtful. Think about consequences for them for if things go certain ways. Pro tip. That's that, This one's free from me. Anyway, uh, Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt has a lot of very interesting material about the interactions between this family and foreign traders, how funds from them actually helped American railroads, and then the investment... Uh, proceedings later were returned to a next generation of this family by their American business partner. But that is not a story for this podcast. 
they had been the traditional mediators between the foreign community and Chinese government. Um, responsibility was put on them for allowing the opium trade to continue. It's like, why didn't you guys stop it? Well, I mean, you know, reality uh, that it was a business that was going on, and I, it's like, okay, so the governor government says, okay, this stuff is illegal, but everybody's doing it. A lot of the officials are being bribed by, you know, by people trading in this stuff. So it's like, do we stop it or what? Like, like really, what do we do? There was some very tense back and forth, tense negotiations. I mean, the it's all quite dramatic. You can read it in uh, in Imperial Twilight for yourself. Um, there were threats to execute the Hong merchants if uh, the opium was not turned over. Foreign traders were not keen to turn over their opium. And part of it was it wasn't all theirs. You know, they it was stuff they were entrusted with by investors and cultivators. <laughs> to sell. It wasn't just theirs to give up. It's like in Star Wars, you know, when when Han Solo is being chased by Imperial cruisers and he dumps a load of Kessel Spice and Jabba the, Jabba the Hutt is really, you know, mad at him for that. Well, it's, it's Jabba's spice. It's not Han's spice. Uh, the one of the merchants uh, was summoned by name for interrogation, um, you, you know, f to to go meet Lian Zexu to answer for the opium trade. Well, remembering how it went with James Flint in, was it 1760, made him refuse to go. You know, you, you know uh, James Flint was arrested and imprisoned for a few years when he went in without escort. You know, it, and so, you know, I was living in China for a long time, and you know, m you know, ninety nine times out of ninety eight, if you go there, it's gonna be fine. But you know, when that one bad egg shows up, and it makes it ninety nine times out of okay, well, two bad eggs show up, ninety nine times out of a hundred, instead of uh, well, maybe one good guy comes. Anyway, the you know, like. When you know, there's all the stories of you know some foreigner arrested in China. Okay, well, family was, you know, not not really. You know, if I was going to go to prison in my home country, well, at least I know what the rights are. I know what the culture is. I know what the language is, um, much better than if it was in China. And so, like, just there, there's no. You just don't want to go to jail in a foreign country. It's just, it's not great. It's super not great. Uh, so how Charles Eliot responded, it's like, he was sure everything was going to go in the worst possible way. There was no, he was on full emergency mode. Um, remember, his job was kind of, was to protect British subjects and keep the peace with the Chinese. So he's, trying you know he was threatening to turn opium smugglers over to the chinese but that's not because he wanted to it's that he wanted to keep the peace he didn't want the chinese to send in the swat team and 
you know, bust the whole trading community and God knows what the Chinese are going to do and what their punishments are going to be. And, um, you know, the, you know, he shows up in his full captain's uniform. Remember, he's a, he's a, a naval captain, uh, on March 24, 1839, promising British government intercession. He's going to try to talk to the Chinese for them, and he's, he's promising his, his protection. He's whatever it takes to, to, to make everything have a happy ending, he's going he's gonna to do what he can do. Lian Zexu uh, blockaded the foreign quarter. He ordered all the Chinese workers out. It wasn't a super strict blockade. A lot of the blockading soldiers were actually deputized Chinese, many of the foreigners knew. You know, so supplies got in. There were friendly relations between the foreigners holed up in the in that part of the town. Um, you know, Chinese business partners sent supplies. I, I don't know that they really had to be super creative to smuggle it, to smuggle in bread and meat and things like that. But it was an intimidation measure. It was Lian Zexu meant business. He meant very serious business. And so Charles Eliot took you know took the initiative to do something that that is going to be the key to the whole thing. Uh, that's, you know, and this is not me just saying that, you know, key is the, is the word that, uh, that turns up in Imperial Twilight. Uh, he announces to everyone, there are going to be promissory notes for fair market value of the opium that everybody has in the name of the queen, backed up by the British government. Okay, you sign it over to me, you get an IOU. And, uh, you know, so let, let's give me all the opium so I can turn it over to the Chinese and British government will pay you back. The foreign traders know he probably didn't have the authority to do this, but he'd been keeping his real authority secret for a long time so they could say, well, you know, in good faith, we, we did what we could do. So uh, this gave him, this gave them a viable way out with their investors they were much more likely to get something out of the British government than the Chinese government because they were citizens of the British government, sub-citizens, subjects, uh, and the, the, the Chinese. It's not like they want to pay drug dealers for bringing stuff in. And it, it wasn't clear what Lian Zexu would do so the so the traders uh took the best option in front of them and they took him up on it and they signed over 2 million british pounds worth of opium uh and so looking up on the cpi inflation cal calculator this is like 217 million 94,515 British pounds in 2022 pounds. That's 268,454,735 US dollars. So over a quarter trillion dollars. Is that street value or is that wholesale value? I'm not sure. This is a huge drug bust. This is the kind of money that makes a government 
ask what the hell it was that just happened. You know, the American government signed a $40 billion arms package for Ukraine. $40 billion is, yeah, okay, that's something that the American government cares a lot about. But, uh, you know, it's, okay, yeah, that's the kind of thing that they're going to willingly spend on something that they care about. But a quarter of a trillion dollars. Okay, some of these companies... Some of these super companies today are worth more than a trillion dollars. That's not their annual revenue. That's what they're worth. Like, you know, you buy your tools and you keep using them for years. You, you don't just, you know, so that, that's, they don't make a trillion dollars a year. They make much, much less than that. But what they own is worth, okay, like this is, this is a middle of the night surprise for the British government. So in context, it makes sense with the British offer of compensation to slave owners for emancipation. You know, it's a way to preserve the principle of private property and business investment while ending the structural injustice of slavery. This is what the British Empire did as they abolished slavery. It was uh, later under President Lincoln, it was a scheme that was considered you know, offering to gradually have the federal government buy up all the slaves held in the deep south of the United States just so that there would be no civil war, that slavery would end, that there would be compensation. And so even though it's a deal with the devil, it's it allows peace to be kept and keep a lot of the important peacetime principles and don't resort to force. And So in, in this historical era, this sort of deal made sense, and Charles Eliot had been in charge of you know, making sure that slaves in British Guyana were not abused, so in in this historical context, that's the sort of offer that somebody might make. Okay, but as we went over in some previous episodes, the British government relied on foreign trade for money. Part of why the East India Company had the uh, had the support of the British government is because it brought in a lot of money. They they made hefty loans at critical times. The British government had moved away from just taking money from the people when they needed it, uh, and they needed a very profitable trade sector to be going. And the British government didn't just have that money. So even though a country like Britain might have a lot of money, the government doesn't just have that money. Whatever else was going to happen in Charles Eliot's career, the British government needed the goodwill of the trading companies back in London. So when they show up with all these promissory notes signed by their superintendent of trade, something's going to happen. And so just in a preview for next week, the opium war started 
not because Britain was trying to force the Chinese to accept the trade in opium. It's that their man on the scene promised that the British government was going to pay back all the British traders who had to give up their opium for the crackdown. But the British didn't have that money, and it's not like they're just going to say, oh, well, sorry, guys. No, they're going to make China pay for it. Because this is like this is like one of those back-to-the-wall moments. Like, either China's going to have the money or you know you know china's going to take it and not us that's that's how this is going to go so come back next week for the opium war just a podcast about it uh, not the war itself i'm grateful to be able to you know exclude us from that anyway so come back for that next week thank you for coming along for this week's adventure. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Join the substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. Most importantly, it, the best way right now to support the podcast, send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And so, have a great week. Have a great week.